Hello everyone, I'm Jo. And I'm Melissa. And this is a podcast where we chat to people who practice Nichiren Buddhism within the SGI. We're not official spokespeople, these are just informal chats about what Buddhism is and why chanting Nam-myoho-renge-kyo works. Welcome to Buddhist Chats. This is the second half of our discussion with Pascal Coyne. We wanted to find a way to share some of the great wisdom, joyfulness and lols we get from his Zoom study sessions. So if you think this sounds more like a lecture than a chat, you'd be right. We've been going for about 10 minutes before we realised we'd already started talking about death, the theme of this episode. Jo had just asked for advice about how to cope when her elderly dog passes away. Grief is grief and it's natural and normal and has to be experienced. It's made worse when we don't know or we don't really understand, but it's still a natural process and rather beautiful. I I, I don't think, um, especially because I've seen friends in the throes. We've, have we started? <laughs> I, I think we might have done. It's recording, I guess. <laughs> um, I've seen friends in the throes of grief and I fully expect and would be slightly appalled, sort of confused if I didn't experience really strong grief when when he passes away but but I but I I would love to have a a sort of a, a better understanding of what's actually just happened <laughs> how it is that something is there and then not there anymore because that just seems so I sort of philosophically, I can't get my head around it. And obviously, I'm not the first person to ask. It's just like, mm. what? where have they gone? <laughs> Funny enough, we're, we're living with it all the time. So Buddhism sometimes doesn't use the word death. It uses the word non-existence. This is a pretty accurate description of death, really. You're not there. Non-existence. But of course, um, life, both life and death exhibit qualities of both existence and non-existence. So at the moment, um, the state of, you know, rage or jealousy or whatever um, doesn't exist. It is in non-existence. We know it's there, but where is it? We cannot find it. It is for all intent and purposes in death. It doesn't exist. And yet, given the right circumstances and conditions, it will appear. So we actually live with non-existence all the time. In fact, in the ten worlds, only one can manifest in one moment. The other nine, by definition, are not in existence in that moment. The famous life is indeed an elusive reality, transcending the words and concepts of existence and non-existence. It is neither existence nor non-existence, yet exhibits the qualities of both. So the Buddha's enlightenment was to understand that. And I find it amazing that when we finally got deep into the atom and saw the electron that rotates around the central um, nucleus, it does short and long orbits, short and long, um, long when it absorbs light, short and long. They don't know what makes it short, but there's lots. And what happens is it, it, it's going around and then suddenly it disappears and reappears somewhere else completely and continue, and then does it again. This is the same as Pluto suddenly disappearing, appearing beside our moon for a moment and then disappearing again and reappearing behind Mars. It's the same. This is how the electron behaves. It is neither existence nor non-existence, yet exhibits the qualities of both. When it's gone, it's gone. It's suddenly not there anymore. Where is it? And then it reappears. The electron 
is this one of the smallest essential fundamental particles and it is in every single atom so every single atom in this universe behaves in this way like at its core at the energy you know we've never really ever touched anything because when two hands touch it's just clouds two enormous clouds of electrons pressing into each other there you know it, it's sort of so stunning and then the, i'm always saying about the atom 99.9999% of its empty space empty space like is that the same there. as dark matter no no it's just it's not the same as dark matter it's ah. just got nothing there so uh, an atom is like if you take Wembley stadium and put a, a circular thing over it and underneath it as well and put a marble in the middle of it that's the atom the marble in the middle is the neutron uh, uh, sorry the proton and the neutron all the rest is empty space except for this insane electron that is flying around at that distance and that's an atom so the atom itself is neither existence nor non-existence it exhibits the qualities of both the the whole part of it the manifest part would be the electron and the neutron and the mu is kind of most of it and so you know this is the atom itself all atoms of course are the effect of uh, cosmic stellar activity and all atoms are simultaneously the cause for future things so not only are atoms mu ho they're also renge and they're all interconnected so they're also kill so all the atoms in the universe are mu ho renge like when we say your life itself <laughs> And of course, then the mystery is what animates matter? How can it be that your, our bodies are made up of nitrogen, oxygen, carbon, and hydrogen? That's 99%. Add calcium, we're up to 99%, nearly everything of us. How can that be? And yet, we're sitting on carbon, breathing in oxygen, wearing carbon. The very same atoms that make up our entirety of our body are also the, the environment, the universe. So when we talk about the oneness of self and universe, it's like a self and environment. We are the environment. And this, this life force is the great question. Did you know every time you breathe in, there will be at least a thousand um, molecules of oxygen or nitrogen that have passed through the lungs of everybody who has ever lived? What? I mean, the scale of it is stunning, yes. And, and so if we could see nitrogen and oxygen, if we could see it, we would understand the, the chemical reality that we have to breathe into our lungs to exist. We, every moment we have to have, I mean, the, the, the beauty of the oneness of life and its environment is incredible because we can't see it. We take it for granted. And one of the whole things I'm, I'm beginning to really see this year is our limited senses are part of the delusion and when we have managed to expand our senses as in to see further into space we've understood a gazillion things and to see further into small things we began to understand microbiology the nature of disease suddenly it's not a curse from the gods no it's these little things here it's bacteria that's what's killing us oh it's viruses but before that, we, was, we were subject to superstitions because of limited senses. So when the human being is able to expand, particularly the, the, the sense of sight, hearing for me would be when we, the industrial revolution, iPhones, it's, it, it's the kind of access to wisdom. It's a sort of, you know. So 
life force animates matter and life brought with it consciousness. So when we have the five components, the temporary coming together of a body, which is a universe in itself, I always hate just saying the first component and jumping on because actually one strand of DNA has got more atoms in it than all of the stars in the universe. I mean, you know, we literally are, every human body is an immense, vast universe of a different scale. I, Joe, you put your hand up there. If you're going to talk about the five components, would you break down really simply what they are? Yes. So life is described in Buddhism. Bear in mind, I always want to qualify these things first. Because of compassion, the Buddha has come up with all these different concepts and stuff to help us understand and uh, to help us you know, not be too attached to delusion. The five components are our physical body. That's the physical aspect. And that has capabilities. And those capabilities are perception, conception, volition, the decision to take action or not to take action, and consciousness. So that on its own actually just describes an empty robot, a spacesuit ready to go. There's no personality in there yet. The consciousness, then, we're into the nine consciousnesses. The first five are see, hear, smell, touch, taste. And the sixth is the integration of see, hear, smell, touch, taste. Then, in a more advanced life form, we have the seventh consciousness, the sense of self, self-reflection, imagination, anxiety, the ego, the smaller self. On death, all of that dissolves back into the universe, both literally, physically, and um, according to Buddhism, you know, in that spiritual sense. What abides is the eighth consciousness. This is what we were talking about a moment ago. Call it Alaya consciousness, as in Himalaya, vast, massive, Alaya consciousness. And often called the storehouse. So the idea that thought, word, and deed are seeds, individual seeds that stack up in this storehouse. This is just metaphorical. This isn't, I'm not even sure it's helpful to think that way. Because as I said, chanting this morning, I, I saw that it is not a place and it is not a time. It is not bound by time, but it definitely is latent energy. It definitely is latent energy. So we have latent energy physically in the form of creating phosphate in our muscles and adrenaline. Hello. Wow. There's latent energy, right? We also have latent energy in the spiritual realm. And that's how we respond massively energetically to different stimulus. You've won the lottery. <laughs> yes. Two minutes ago, you were thinking, oh, I'm just going to lie down for a bit. And then, hey, guess what? Bam, energy. It was there. It is there. We respond. And so energy also exists both manifest and non-manifest. Myo and home. There and not there. So the five components describe an empty, if you like, spacesuit, ready to go. It's got a body which can conceive and perceive, make decisions and experience consciousness. The eighth consciousness is karma. That continues after death. These are fascinating ideas because I, when I'm speaking, I can see that my mind is trying to put pictures into it, but it's kind of not that because it didn't go into a place that it in, merged with the universe in this bit. It merges in every bit. <laughs> It just returns to this great cosmic potential life that's just waiting. I had this amazing experience last summer, um, or the summer before. Anyway, 
I was in my garden. I own weed with my hand. Um, and I do demokos and pulling weeds up because, you know, this is a subjective experience. I have to qualify. It's a subjective experience. I pulled this weed up and I felt life go, all right, no problem. I'll just manifest in carbon somewhere else in the garden. I was just like, nothing's lost. Nothing's wasted. It was just, uh, it was an extraordinary, I get these gifts every now and again when I least expect them. When I'm really devoting myself to closing roof group and supporting people, and suddenly I'm in a wood or something like that, and I just get the gifts of unbelievable things like that. So this all one through seven just disappear at death. And bear in mind, seven is where we live in our delusion. It's who we think we are, the great me. This is, you know, this is so significant because all of that one perception, conception, volition and consciousness and the body, see, hear, smell, touch, taste, their integration and our sense of self, all of that goes because it was barely even there. But what abides is this alaya, this fundamental life energy. That is, I, I always like to use the memory stick analogy. So the, the first, you know, the body is the computer that's bulk, the keyboard, all the rest of it. And it's capacity, see here, smell, touch, taste, integration, perception. But then the seventh consciousness is actually the screen we're looking at. So when something goes wrong with the computer and a, a buffer comes up on it, let's say, and you're in a rush, we never look at the place it's actually coming from and go, oh, we always like you shake our fist at the screen. But this, that is not the source of problem. The problems come from the hard drive. And it's a very good analogy, really. Um, we don't look at the source of where our problems are coming from, which is, you know, deep in our life, our karma, if you like. The ninth consciousness is another way of talking about Myoho-Ringyakyo. It's the great, pure, cosmic life itself. And so I kind of think of this like an ocean, you know, um, the ocean, so that, you know, an individual drop of water is us. The wave, our seventh consciousness, one through seven, the wave is the eighth consciousness, and the ocean itself is the great, is the ninth. And so what's fascinating about that is that a certain depth in the ocean that I'm describing, the consciousness has merged with each other, and we begin to share the space, the consciousness of subconscious karma with family, with genders, with ethnicities, and as you go further down, it just becomes with humanity. And you go further down, it becomes with animals and insects and the grass. And then you go further down, and now you're into the ninth consciousness. It's all one. There never was any distinctions. There never was any distinctions. Hi, Miss. Yep. Um, I'm just. I just wanted to jump in because something that I sometimes say to people who want a really quick definition of why I think practicing this Buddhism has transformed my thinking about death. I'm not saying I'm there yet in terms of not being at all afraid of it, but I'm certainly less freaked out than I used to be. But I just say, well, look, it's the first law of thermodynamics. It's energy cannot be created or destroyed. Essentially, as you said, you know, the weed you pulled up, just it's going to be a weed somewhere else. And the people that die are just going to be some kind of conscious thing somewhere, you know, like the well, who knows where the conscious, we might end up being a weed. 
that level of interest in sort of exactly how reincarnation works, I'm not that bothered about. I don't sort of care about whether I used to be an Egyptian princess or whether I'm going to come back on a different planet. You definitely did. (laughs) What was that, Jo? You definitely did. I think so. I mean, yeah, let's, let's, we'll explore that in in a different podcast. But, um, essentially just this notion to to go back to losing your dog um i hope that doesn't happen anytime soon but i don't know if this does help but i it certainly helped me i i have lost a few people um including you know my dad and various friends and um there is a sense that just knowing that that essentially they haven't gone anywhere i mean they have their physical body isn't here but that energy is somewhere and that does help me just knowing that through chanting I love this about Gongyo that when we do the prayers I'm kind of saying hi to them the energy is still flowing between us the love that we had is still there and it does help yeah no that's beautiful thank you um that is beautiful that reminds me of a quote and I actually have the book here I want to it's from the wisdom of the lotus sutra volume four Thank you, Melissa. Um, This quote is very special to me. Sensei says, it's on page 271, The power of the mystic law is enormous. The Daimoku that we chant reaches the lives of the deceased latent in the universal life. President Toda said, The power of Daimoku is immense. It can cause a life harboring under painful karma to experience a peaceful and dreamlike state as though frolicking in a garden of flowers. Sensei concludes, the sound of our voice chanting Daimoku resonates throughout the entire universe. Hmm. Oh, that's so lovely. Um, yeah, love the bit about the garden of flowers. So, yeah. Hmm. So, life and death, existence and non-existence, Mioho. The, it, it is the rhythm of the mystic law. Famously, the Gosho says, you know, Mio is death, Ho is life, life and death are the two phases passed through by the entities of this principle, Mio. So, Mio is death, Ho is life, Mio Ho is the very rhythm of existence. I was thinking something about rhythm. Rhythm's interesting because it relies on empty space and non existence to happen. So, that's a rhythm, right? But actually, it wouldn't be a rhythm if there were bits between the noises that were not there. It's the empty space that makes the rhythm. It's this bit that differentiates the, between the sounds. So actually, rhythm itself relies on. So the energy or the rhythm of the... It's clear, isn't it? Because everything... I mean, we spend a third of our lives asleep. I mean, we have to, you know, our energies are up, but then very often our energy is down and then we have to sleep. If we don't, we'll just go insane eventually. So this is a natural part of physicality and existence is the need to actually touch into Mio on a regular basis. Um, I suppose, yeah, go, go, go. Yes, I was going to say... Um... Why do you think we find it so difficult, um, even with a, a, a pretty solid, well, I say pretty, a totally solid, um, as solid as you can be about stuff that you can't prove? Um, 
even with that philosophy, it's really hard to access any kind of wisdom when your heart is broken or, you know, you, you perceive your heart to be broken because a relationship has ended or, you know, someone that you loved has passed away. It's very, very difficult to, to access a kind of rationality or wisdom. And I'm wondering why why that is. Well, I think, um, you know, Daisaku Ikeda says, um, yes, grief is natural, but try not to be totally overwhelmed by it because it's one of the Sancho Shimas, the three obstacles and four devils. It's right up there. It's a major, major, major thing. So Buddhism is about the question of life and death, including suffering, but particularly death. Nichiren said, I thought, first of all, I conquered my understanding of death, then I'd work on everything else. So actually the question of death is the foundation of Buddhism. It's also because it's so deep and crucial, the foundation of a lot of charlatanism because it's the biggest fear and so but you know because you can talk about stuff with no proof so the question of death is the question of everything foundation of all philosophy and thought it's the it's the basis of everything it's the most important thing so um and it's one of the sanchoshimas because of its potential to um to just stop us practicing really and to give up and to whatever uh, or to be totally overwhelmed so you know, my brother died when he was 31. He was the cl closest thing I had to family. And my grieving process for him went on for many, many, many years. Every anniversary of his birth and death, I'd get in front of Gohons and get tissues ready because I knew it was going to be a profound uh, thing. Seven years in, uh, on his anniversary of his death, I got the bell, got the tissues all ready to go, got his picture. He played the banjo, and we busk. I'd meet him in various capitals around Europe, and we'd sort of busk together, Irish music and all that sort of stuff. Rang the bell, and it was like, oh, it's gone. It's, oh, like, that's interesting. And the process, one of my, uh, again, subjective experiences is um, I've moved to Brighton, and I'm walking over the South Downs, and I'm on this kind of long, what we call in Ireland, a boreen. Uh, basically, it's not quite a road. Anyway, I'm walking up it, and so I start singing Irish songs, and that puts me in mind of Brendan. The rocky road to Dublin is the song. In the merry month of June, from my home was dark, I kissed the girls of June, nearly broken heart, I saluted your father, dear, I kissed me, darling mother, drank a pint to gear me after, etc., etc. So I'm singing this song, going along, having a great time. So I start to think of him, and then I start to well up with tears, naturally, because it's only about three years into his death. And then I get to the crest of this hill, and I'm proper crying, and the wind is washing up, and I turn around, and the salt, and I'm looking at the sea, and the salt water coming out of my eyes, and I'm breathing with the wind, and I'm standing on the earth, and the sun's trying to break through the sky, and Brendan is everywhere. He's in the wind, he's in my chest, he's everywhere and nowhere, all at the same time. It's the most profound experience, one of the most profound experiences, totally subjective, but it was real. I didn't. It just happened. It was, and it was just the most incredible um, feeling. And it was, it was both painful and beautiful. There's nothing to be afraid of in expressing pain. In fact, it's a miracle. E energy, motion, emotion, that we as a creature have evolved a method through our tear ducts. That, that emotion, that spiritual, psychological pain and suffering can actually leave our body, ex be expressed and re relieved in our body, is a total miracle. And it's amazing too how 
truth will come out anyway. You know, sometimes we're trying to have a stiff upper lip or just get on with it or whatever it is. And, and it just happens. You know, and we might be in work <laughs> on the street, but it's just like, no, no, truth is happening to you right now. It doesn't matter what your seventh consciousness is going to try and deal with this and be all strong. Here comes the truth and you are going to cry. And that's beautiful. Um, I just wanted to, well, a couple of things, but one of the things I wanted to share is just, I mean, this is a, it's not a Buddhist concept, but I love that really simple phrase. If it, if it didn't, if it doesn't, if it, did, if it didn't matter, it wouldn't matter. It basically that grief is sort of an emotional account system for love. So the amount of grief you feel is in direct proportion to the amount of joy that you got from someone and mm -hmm. them's the breaks. But that means that when you're, it, you will suffer. Like Buddhism doesn't promise that you're not going to suffer, but you have to remind yourself I'm suffering. The suffering is this bad because I was so lucky to have this relationship. I think, I think one of my most favourite quotes from Nichiren Daishonin is, is suffer what there is to suffer, enjoy what there is to enjoy. Because I like it. It's just so unspiritual. It's just really practical. And um, I remember um, years ago being very, very heartbroken about the end of a relationship. And I was crying so hysterically that I thought, I really want to see what I look like. And I went to the bathroom and I stood in front of the mirror and I was really, really crying. I, but at the same time, I was kind of observing. I was just like, wow, God, you really, I mean, that's what grief looks like. So I was sort of having the experience and commenting on the experience. I just thought, you look like that munch, you look like that munch painting. Um, and uh, I think I even then started taking selfies. I thought one day I want to look back at these and remember how I felt this bad and now I feel fine. And and that next time I feel this bad, that I will obviously again feel fine. But um, it was so help. It was really, you know, in that moment to be able to rem remember that I wasn't just the emotion. I was able to sort of stand outside it. Mm, that's extraordinary. I had a similar experience crying. Um, I cried for years after not crying for my entire life. And I used to get back at the time I was living in the squat um, in Brentford. And I used to get home and I'd be getting the keys in the door and the tears would be welling up. And I tried to get in. My task was to get in, skin up and open a can of Stella with the TV on before the tears came. And this was happening every night. It was just so predictable. This, this tears that had to be cried. Until one night I heard myself say, I wonder what's on Channel 4. And I realized it had gone from howling pain to just, just it was literally a sort of, as you said, Mel, this sort of build, this reservoir of pain that just had to be, gone through somehow <laughs> yes so on, on the the suffer what there is to suffer enjoy what there is to enjoy regard so attitude regard both suffering joys as facts of life and keep chanting nam myoho no matter what happens this is the greatest joy of the law that's the point of the end of that particular thing and that relates to the two characters on the gongs the sufferings of birth and death are Buddha. In light, uh, earthly desires are Buddha. They're front and center uh, on the Gohonzon and big for a very, very important reason. They're kind of the two ways that negativity most uh, shows itself in our life. Suffering and desire, fear and want. And particularly in the seventh consciousness, because it literally dissolves as i said at death so steep down we know 
we're not really there. <laughs> but if we're locked into identifying with this seventh consciousness, first thing that happens is we want to add to it because it's not enough, which is for me the daimoku of fundamental darkness. I am not enough. That's the daimoku of fundamental darkness. You can put any word before enough, but fundamentally, we're going namyoring ikyo. I am perfect right now. I am life. I am one with all life. And then the echo is, no, you're not. You piece of shit. No, you're not. You're rubbish. No, you're not. You're crap. No, you're not. You're going to die alone. No, you're not. You're... This echo of I am not enough. So the, the great situation then, of course, is that in that seventh, so we, we need to add to ourselves desperately, including other people's opinions, validation, career things, stuff, money, clothes, you name it, adding, adding. So it's a state of gnawing want to be dominated by this dissatisfaction and perpetual looking outside ourselves and adding to ourselves. Simultaneously, we're terrified of being diminished because we're already not enough. <laughs> so the last thing we need is to be diminished. And that, of course, creates fear. Uh, um, and fear is, you know, the physical expression of the mental thing that is doubt. When doubt appears, fear appears immediately after it. Usually doubt happens first, then fear, but sometimes fear will create doubt. Thought feeling, thought feeling. So the, the perpetual wanting, wanting and fearing, fearing is, is a kind of state of life of unhappiness based on the delusion. So then we have these characters on the gonzon. Your sufferings are enlightenment. If you think about it, earthly desires are enlightenment and your sufferings are enlightenment. No, they're not. Those sentences are not true. So what's going on? You know, that's not true. No, it isn't. Suffering suffering and desire is desire. And so the key, of course, the answer to that question is to look in the middle. When you chant nam myo ho kyo through the, the illusions in a way, they also relate to the four um, winds, the eight winds. There's four good winds in inverted commas, and that relates to earthly desires, which is pleasure and uh, attainment and um, prosperity and fame and stuff like that, isn't it? So they relate to those four winds. And then suffering, obviously suffering is the one of, you know, suffering, decline, criticism, and disgrace. So we are perpetually leaning towards wanting pleasure and praise and honor and prosperity, that's where we're always heading, simultaneously running away from criticism, you know, deprivation, uh, suffering, etc. So the, four, the eight winds are actually crystallized into those two characters, which are crystallized into the transformative message, nam myo kyo Because nam myo kyo causes Buddhahood to come out of the effect of suffering and desire. What is the effect of suffering and desire? Hell, hunger, animality, ego, tranquility, and rapture. To be locked into the six worlds, which is the experience of the seventh consciousness, which is why lifetime after lifetime after lifetime can pass in this just a reactive way, just being born, being a bit insecure, taking action based on it, having drama, blah, 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 70 years later you're dead. What was that all about? rarely breaking out into the, and certainly, you know, rarely getting to Bodhisattva. So earthly desires of enlightenment and the sufferings of birth and death and nirvana is true only when we apply Nam-yoringi-kyo to them. Um, and Sensei puts it beautifully, actually. He says, we don't, what we do is we imbue them 
our sufferings and our desire. I love that, imbue them with compassion and wisdom. We're just pouring our compassion and wisdom into our suffering and our desire as it's happening, imbuing them with those qualities. And then naturally the, the sharpness of them, the unpleasantness of them, the deludedness of them, it's changed. And then we experience suffering and now we know as Bodhisattvas, all people suffer like this. I'm suffering, this is human suffering, and I am a Bodhisattva of the earth, and I understand that I have a mission that can transform so much human suffering that is unnecessary. A lot of suffering is perspective or misapprehension. Some suffering is completely natural and normal, but when we can access that view, that attitude, I am suffering because millions of people suffer abjectly and I can offer something to those people when I meet them in the future. Or if I never meet them, I can encourage somebody to chant and that will ripple out eventually and find someone so that the suffering, how could this be anything other than the greatest joy of the law, says the Daishonin at the end of that quote. How could, so it's not a rationalization. It's not like, oh, just get on with it, pull your socks up, you'll be okay, get through this, this too shall come to pass. It's, it's not about that at all. It's about, how could this be anything other than the total joy of the law? That's the, you know, the conclusion. It's beautiful. Yeah, Joe. You're muted. Oh, you're on mute. Nice. <laughs> I didn't want any background noise to interrupt your lovely flow. Um, I, um, my experience of chanting, and which I think is shared by lots of people, is that uh, so there's not that I don't suffer anymore, but that uh, I feel more hopeful about the future and about my ability to overcome any problems I might be having. That's sort of, I would say, the distillation of my main experience of chanting. But why does that happen? Why does that happen? And I, when I first started chanting, I was heartbroken. I'm sensing a theme here, but uh, uh, I think it was the same heartbreak, which is, yeah, maybe why I was also able to look at myself in the mirror. I'd suddenly developed a new way of healing. But anyway, um, why why did that why does that happen that chanting this repetitive phrase basically allows you to cope better chanting namyorengekyo stimulates a level of consciousness in us that begins to permeate into what was previously a very unhappy and tight level that i'm always calling the seventh consciousness because it's i find it useful so although we're barely aware of it, it is happening for us. So a lot of the time when I chant, I'm not sort of transcending being one with the universe. And that, that's not my experience. My experience is I'm feeling a bit hopeful, strangely. Circumstances haven't changed. I'm feeling, so there's a perspective that comes in. If we think about perspective, you know, perception, conception, volition and consciousness, that's just a mechanism. And that experiences hell in that way, perceive, conceive, volition, consciousness. Hunger in that way, perceives everything as a desire. You know, every, Each of the 10 worlds acts out the five components. So when we're chanting, um, our Buddha nature is beginning to actually manifest. It's beginning to happen for us. So there's now space that wasn't there previously. For me, consciousness is about, is, is a, is about space. Um, so when we're constricted in our consciousness, there's nowhere to go and small things seem really big because there's nothing to compare it to. And so if we lose someone we love, which is one of the um, 
What's the word? Contributory now. Bloody long COVID. Half of my vocabulary is gone. Other uh, suffering. So the four sufferings, birth, sickness, old age, and death, profound, deep reason for Buddhism. We don't focus on those very much. We focus on their auxiliary sufferings. Losing those you love is one of those sufferings. Meeting those you don't like or would rather not meet is one of those sufferings. Not getting what you want is one of those sufferings. And that general background anxiety, new things are just a bit naff feeling. So those things we're really identifying with. And we're victims almost. We're inside, we're just being beaten up by this because we're locked into this smaller self. We chant Namiringikyo, and the walls of that membrane begins to loosen up. And this other consciousness can at last return home to us. And we just feel it generally, don't we, as a bit more hopeful or suddenly in the midst of agony, we're able to have a perspective that goes, I think I'll just go and look at myself in the mirror. So like this is two things going on. You're playing out your karma on the one side and this expanded consciousness is standing outside that is going, oh, I've got an idea. Why don't we do this in the middle of this karmic? Rather than if that, you know, if, if the consciousness was less than that, then you just, oh, why me, why me, why me? Um, and the answer to the problem with heartbreak, of course, is the first question, it's hell, right? Because you don't want it to be there and it's inescapable. So it's the world of hell. So the first thing that happens in hell always is the desire to get out of hell. The next life state, hunger. So in the case of heartbreak, it, it's summed up in the uh, phrase, not phrase, the word, why? And because there's no answer to that, you're back into hell again. But all you can do is go, why? Like temporarily, if there's an answer, I can get out of hell. There's no answer back into hell. So you walk in this cycle. Um, and so that's amazing that you know, how you describe that. It's, it's like instead of just being locked into abject suffering, there was space enough for you to have this quite brilliant idea. <laughs> yeah, I would say also that the, the as the years have gone on and, and, you know, I've chanted more and more, I've had a much greater sense of my responsibility to contribute. I think my ambitions and my things that I was chanting for when I first started off were, uh, was, were, were, were very, very self-focused, actually. And um, one of the things, well, actually, I don't, I don't know if I feel comfortable talking about some of them right now because they're quite shaming. But, um, uh, but, but, but that when the, a lot of the things that I was chanting for didn't happen, and uh, but other things that I hadn't been chanting for did happen, I, I, I didn't lament the things that had not happened, which I had assumed when I first started chanting that my life would be incomplete without those things, and 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 with my little. Del- small smaller self what I thought would be the source of my life life's happiness turned out to be to be really wrong and so I, I, I've always understood um, earthly desires are enlightenment in that context as well where you can chant for something that you you know that you really seriously want and then in the process of chanting and 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 it not happening the the amount of human revolution you've done, in the amount of chanting you've done and the the kind of sort of self-reflection you've done in order to get the thing you thought you wanted means that you're happier, stronger, wiser, 
Um, another thing I've really noticed is that I do, I just, I've become so much more outward focused. It's related to what you said about sort of your sense of responsibility and mission, but um, I just feel like I go out onto the streets or, you know, as telling, I put it like that because I should mm -hmm. start right here in my flat with the people I live with. But um, and I do, I try, I try to, but that's the hardest. But I feel like um, this sense of kinship with everybody, and I feel such a sense of even with people that I really don't like or find quite difficult. Um, I just don't, I don't have this sort of weird need to judge people and feel better or worse than them or sort of put myself in a pecking order like I used to it does seem to erode that sense of that us and them that small self like that was one of the things and that wasn't consciously something I was chanting for I mainly started chanting to just stop feeling so anxious um and it did work on that but it also transformed a lot of relationships it just kind of I just realized that I wasn't as critical of others um still quite critical of myself and i'm working on that but um but yeah it does it it sort of seems to develop that sense of connection on some really really profound level and and that connection is always there this is the thing about buddhism and the shedding enlightenment is also not just the lighting up so we can see but it's the shedding of weight uh that's also part of it the connection is always there so in the last moment of life everyone gets to see enlightenment because on some level in that profound time one knows it's all over the body the bank account the stress the house all of it it's completely gone it's gone it's over this is it and in that moment with that clarity everyone sees what is always what has always been there the great truth that life itself is the most precious thing. Sadly, if one has spent one's life adding, subtracting, etc., then the next moment's going to be a moment of regret. That's why we're so fortunate as Buddhists, because we're actually always getting to that last moment of life. In fact, it's one of the Goshus for one who summons up the profound insight that now is the last moment of their life, the sutra says, etc., etc. So this is so beautiful. We don't have to wait. The last moment of life will be so familiar to us, so beautiful, so beautiful. Thank you so much. That was amazing. Lovely. Thank you so much. Yeah, that was just great. Thank you, Pascal. It's such a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for listening. And thanks to Kerry Sheldrick for helping us get started, Tash Wilcox for doing our artwork, Barclay Bandon and Grim Grim for the music, and of course, Pascal Coyne for making the time to chat with us. <laughs>